Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Kiartan Rist, founder and managing partner of Concentric, a UK slash Denmark based seed and beyond fund focusing on B2B and B2B2C startups, building software companies solving non trivial problems in traditional sectors. Kiartan has been a VC for 20 years, so we can't wait to dive deep with him on his firm, his thesis, and vehemoth belief in being a hands on investor, as well as how he has seen the investment landscape develop over two decades. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Hack and Hustle's launching the second cohort of their first fundraise accelerator program. Tailor made for European first time founders about to raise their pre seed or seed round. In 10 weeks, founders learn directly from European VC champions while they build and execute on a no BS fundraise prep that will secure them their next round of financing fast. It's up or out. If founders don't keep up the pace, they're kicked. So participation and progress is ensured for the most ambitious teams. Invite founders in your network to visit hackhustle.co and apply to get connected to the European VC. Jordan, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time to talk with us here at the European VC. Thank you and thank you for contributing to the ecosystem. Anything that I can add to the knowledge and engagement in the VC industry is great and is a nascent industry and we can use all the help we can get. Thanks for saying that, Jordan, and we can only second that. That's why we started the podcast, so absolutely. First thing I want to ask you is on a personal note, because I recognize that you've been in the industry since 2000 and I just can't not take the opportunity here to ask, what was it like back then and what's it like now and when you contrast it what has changed yeah so i started out around 2000 and if you categorize it back in 2000 the vc industry was a startup it was at the seed stage now in 2021 you can say it's a scale-up it's growing really fast it's maturing and it's becoming more fundamental in europe Back in 2000, we were flicking between dial-up and broadband, and many of the business models that exist today, they only function because we have broadband, even mobile broadband. Today, we also have the benefit of cloud computing, open source software, development platforms, etc. So all these luxury state of the industry today, we didn't benefit from in 2000. Back in 2000, in addition, the venture capital industry wasn't known. The media didn't write about it. There weren't podcast hosts like you. I was learning the trade, but I knew enough about the venture capital. So when I went to see entrepreneurs, I had to explain to them what venture capital actually was. In contrast, today, I have young entrepreneurs in their 20s coming to tell me how I should structure my deals. <laughs> What's the best advice you've been given by uh, <laughs> entrepreneur on how to structure your deals? <laughs> no, I mean, it is about complicated pref structures, complicated reps and warranties and things like that. And it's like focus on building your business. And uh, <laughs> yeah. we will make sure that we are not imposing terms on you that is going to be detrimental to you. The final thing I would like to say as well, 
in 2000, entrepreneurship or being an entrepreneur wasn't a profession in Europe. Today, it is probably the most sought after profession in mm -hmm. Europe. And if you ask people at business school or people at university, that is a dream. Most people would like to start around company and become an entrepreneur. Back then, it wasn't a profession. I'm a tad bit curious here, and I'm almost stealing the limelight for something that I'm sure David will hate me for saying because he would want to ask you because he loves the thought of entrepreneurs as cockroaches, meaning that they just cannot die, that they survive anything. And then you have the, uh, I think David refers to them as atomic cockroaches. And that's then the entrepreneurs who have gone through the hardships of entrepreneurship in a non-developed ecosystem. And I'm thinking, how would you contrast the quality and the type of entrepreneurs you saw back in 2000 with what you're seeing now? Because with the growth and hype around being an entrepreneur, I'd have to think that we are seeing a lot more people just <laughs> jumping in here and not really knowing what they're doing just because it's the latest cool thing. There's one caveat there is that I think there always been entrepreneurs the big difference is that now we have entrepreneurs trying to break barriers in terms of technology and innovation. And at the same time, we have seen this ambition and this skill set and the knowledge amongst entrepreneurs has been building because schools are educating both kids and adults in terms of our entrepreneurship. And as I said, we have the tools available in the society to become an entrepreneur and we are catering for entrepreneurs. If you contrast it that way, you may say that we have come on leaps and bounds, but I can also see in the last 10 years, the way that the quality of the entrepreneur is increasing every year. They're becoming smarter, they're becoming basically more focused on what they're building. That is also coupled with there are so many opportunities today mm -hmm. and so many areas they can exploit and explore compared to maybe 20, 30 years ago. Let me just interrupt for a small side note. Let's give credit where it's due. The cockroach idea is actually from Boost VC. <laughs> it's not mine. And they talk about the cockroach and the nuclear cockroach. <laughs> just give that credit, Andreas. <laughs> I like the uh, atomic, <laughs> atomic cockroach better. <laughs> and then I'll credit you, Dave. <laughs> uh, on that note, let's jump to the first main topic here, which is, of course, concentric thesis. And I'm very curious here because what you are, you say you're seeding beyond fund and you're focusing on B2B and B2B to C startups, building software companies, solving, and here's the funny part, I think, non-trivial problems in traditional sectors. You're not seeing many who target those areas, I think. But let's start with the basics. What are non-trivial problems and why do you focus on them? And then the same thing for traditional sectors. What are we talking about? Yeah, I'll see if I can dig through that sort of super interesting topic. So <laughs> non-trivial sectors. So these are must-have versus then nice-to-have. So you need access to financial services. You need access to transport. You need access to housing. You need access to insurance, etc. You don't need access to the latest Justin Bieber tune. You don't need access to the latest Netflix. You don't need to gamble. You need to game. That is basically must-have versus nice-to-have. That is sort of the first part of it. The non-trivial aspects or services or products in society are the building blocks that enables the society to function. And what we have seen, particularly during the last 18 months, is that many of these building blocks, they have been stress tested and they've shown frailties. And one of the ways to repair or to address and strengthen those building blocks on non-trivial sectors is through technology and 
software in particular. So that's the first part of my sort of addressing your question. Then is what is sexy about <laughs> traditional sectors? I mean, they're large sectors. There's a huge digital transformation ongoing in all of them. The digital transformation is being sold mostly via software or probably in most cases, or in all cases, via some sort of software. There have been decades of opportunities ahead solving these problems, and hence there's a huge opportunity for the venture capitalist. We will see automation, efficiency, and cost savings as a result of addressing these sectors. And as a venture capitalist, we will be able to cherry-pick the best entrepreneurs and the best companies in order to build great companies. Uh, maybe we also want to give you an example of a traditional sector. The biggest asset class in the world is real estate. If you add tech or software to real estate, it's prop tech. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to change the way we work. We're going to change the way we live. We're going to change the way we own property. And there are buildings such as parking houses etc. The demand for them will go down because we will be co-owning cars. And what are we going to do with those? So there are huge opportunities there in the prop tech area, as an example. When, for example, if we focus on prop tech here, prop tech, it's very much demographic development and infrastructure development and all these very highbrow topics are very broad sweeping topics that determine which companies are going to win, I think, or at least which technology is to bet on. And I'm thinking, are you very thesis driven also within prop tech? So you say, for example, a contrarian view would be that with the rise of self-driving cars, the move towards the cities, the urbanization will not pick up pace in the way that most people expect because people will say, nah, but I can just travel in my car without ever doing anything. Do you have that kind of thesis inside of the prop tech space and the different verticals? Or are you more, nah, that's the entrepreneur's job. We'll hear what they're saying and then we'll, <laughs> we'll bet on them if we think that it sounds like it's right. If we start from the macro view, there's a huge amount of buildings around the world that will be utilized for a different purpose or for a somewhat changed purpose. Whether that is office, the way we work, the way we live in terms of the home, etc. Within that, there are areas that we will be looking at. How do you get most efficiency out of the home? Or how do you use technology to measure flow? How do you use technology in order to create more services that can be automated? Surveying, for example. So within the prop tech space, we are looking for entrepreneurs that can come up with new ways of delivering products or services using technology, taking advantage of this huge sector called real estate. David and I, we often talk about the VC twilight zone, meaning companies that occupy spaces that are difficult to raise VC money in. And I wonder, inside of your thesis, which sectors do you see that are less loved than they maybe should be? And how do you think about that? So venture capital is a substitute for entrepreneurs who want to grow faster than they can sort of recycle their profits. In our view, sales and profits is traditionally the best way of building a company. Sectors, they go in and out of fashion. VCs, in many cases, they act as lemmings. They just <laughs> follow their neighbor. Some are more patient than others. Some are more risky than others. And the way we see it is like there are really three sort of market scenarios. Companies that go after large total addressable markets, and there are many players there. There are companies that have a large future market, less players, and they're due to 
the timing and riskiness. And then there are companies operating in niche markets, less competition, but there are some specialists going for that. Taking that back to the initial question, insurance was never perceived to be a venture game. No. Now it is. If you put InsureTech into your business plan, you can easily get attention from your venture capitalists or the audience that you're targeting. On the flip side, probably one of the first sectors that went through digital transformation was the advertising industry, the media tech industry. Today, people don't want to touch it because the companies or the customers are somewhat struggling. I'm absolutely sure that ad tech and media tech will be back in fashion again. On that note, uh, maybe just before you go on, are you a lemming? Are you investing actively <laughs> now and staying away from insure tech or are you like the others? Um, maybe a semi-lemming. Uh, <laughs> no, my point is that we are trying not to be yeah. that follower we, we're trying to develop independent thinking and we're trying to make sure that not being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, mm -hmm. but we need to have our own fundamental thinking when we go through this. What I was trying to say with those two examples is that VCs are buying into companies that can produce big sales, eventual profits, and market-leading sort of KPIs and technology. Taking that back to us is we also need to look at trends what sectors are ripe for disruption? What are the larger companies in the sector doing? We see that some sectors reached further in disruption or digital transformation than others. So this is an elaboration. I mean, there's no point us pouring all our resources into ad tech when that sector is bleeding <laughs> totally. So we need to be sensible as well. I want to change a bit topics here. So off the thesis of Concentric, first time we spoke, you highlighted quite a bit that you have an activist hands-on approach. And we actually reached out to some, some people in your network and we spoke with Leopold Gastine. I hope I'm saying it right. Yeah. Director at Sector Asset Management, a Nordic hedge fund boutique. And he backed this claim up. Andreas and I, we've heard every single VC on this show say that <laughs> almost, right? So let us deep dive a bit into that. What does that mean exactly? What is that? What can entrepreneurs expect and why should the best look at Concentric as, you know, a, a key partner that they should give preference over? Totally agree. It's almost like a cliche we are a value-add investor. From Concentrics, we have proven that we can add value at many, if not most, levels in the portfolio companies, but also to companies that do not end up becoming portfolio companies because we always try to leave them with a nugget or leave them with an introduction, etc. But the fact that we can add value to all our companies, that's almost like investor KPIs, if you want. It's not that we are measuring that, but you can almost call it that. Entrepreneurs, the CEOs in our portfolio, they have identified the fact that we will stretch far, we will work hard, we will do what it takes to support them. And they appreciate this. And we see that from the way they introduce us to other entrepreneurs and introduce us to other companies. Because entrepreneurs... They talk amongst themselves. You shouldn't step out of line and expect the entrepreneur community not to know about it. The way that we add value, the way we conduct our sort of activist venture mindset, it also means that they talk about this. The entrepreneurs are the best referees we can have. Adding real value, what does that actually mean? That can be helping them with uh, international expansion. It could be they're expanding into France or expanding into Malaysia using those two examples as companies that we in a portfolio that we have helped. It could be business development. Sometimes it helps 
accessing some companies higher up in the system and trickling down then going further down in the companies and so that is what we are business development is something we're doing every day we are helping companies with recruitment that is both executive talent and non-executive talent we have placed slash recruited seven chairmen for our portfolio of 22 companies and this is without the use of a headhunter as a whole these chairmen has performed successfully in that position we're helping companies when they're going through funding exercises when they're going through M&A, corporate finance aspects, we help them with corporate governance. Some of them, the board is not set up when we join and we help them with setting up the board and helping them with uh, sort of best-in-class type uh, reporting structure for board meetings, etc. We help them with conflict resolution, basically helping them sort of, if there's shareholder conflict, supplier conflict, if there's founder conflict, and we will step in and act as a mediator or to do so. So, so they, they, you, you name it, we've been involved in it. So as you can hear, in some companies, this can be quantified in terms of how many customers have we managed to secure, how many board members have, have we recruited, how many offices have we helped setting up, etc. When we are entering a company, part of our due diligence or our analysis is the analysis of the shortcomings of the entrepreneur or the founding team and how we can plug the gaps as part of our investment review. And this is obviously mainly centered around the entrepreneur because the entrepreneur is one of the brightest people in the world. Mm -hmm. Even though being that sort of personality, they still are 20, 30% away from being 100%. And no one is 100%. So we need to add this sort of differentiated approach to entrepreneurs it's not like one size fits all. Some of them need help on commercial issues, some need on, on governance issues, some need on, on people issues. So we just need to add that approach and be flexible in our thinking. If we get the information and the issue flagged up early, we can solve any problem, either directly or through facilitating to someone who have probably deeper expertise in that area. And to uh, sort of extrapolate this to our fund, probably one of the main tasks that myself and my partner, Dennis, have is to further enhance this activist investor mindset culture and pass that on to the people we bring on board, particularly younger people that are being nurtured and built and will eventually become partners of the fund. We love this part of the job because this is where we can really add value and this is where we can really see how we can make a difference. Sometimes a change is small and sometimes it's big. Many of our listeners are emerging managers. So it's really interesting to understand, simply put, you kind of summarize the core areas of value add. But what would also be interesting to understand is then the operational side of this? How does this work? And I think the first thing we need to ask you to kind of clarify to our listeners is, okay, what's the team like in Concentric? How many people are there? And then understanding, okay, in doing value add, you have a more ad hoc approach where you just follow the requirements and whoever helps with whatever, or is there a more structured process where, you know, you are focused on adding value in X to all companies of the portfolio. How does that work? I think that would be really interesting to yeah. understand how you guys tackle the value adds from an operational perspective. Yeah, let's take team first. So the team, an extended team of Concentric is, we have four investment professionals, two senior, two junior, and then we have two revolving interns. They stay for three to six months. So six people who work with investments. 
Then we have three people in our sort of back office. They involved in everything from reporting, accounting, investor relations, social media, you name it. But mostly sort of making sure the back office is in order. Around that, we have two boards. It's one advisory board and one advisory council. The advisory board is when there's potential conflict of interest, when we need to have our accounts signed off, etc. Because these are two people and, and they are very formal and very knowledgeable when it comes to legal and accounting matters. Then we have an advisory council that consists of, at the moment, 16 people. These are CEOs, chairmen, highly successful, current entrepreneurs, older entrepreneurs, headhunters, etc. So it's a good mix of people, but all people we know really well and can add value. And then we have something called Concentric 100, which is a uh, broader selection of people that we have a relationship with, people we have worked with, people who have backed in the past, industrial people, etc. So that is sort of the onion, if you want. And then we have the broader network outside of that that we access on an ad hoc basis. On your question, how do we add value? So part of our day job is basically speaking to our companies, making sure we understand where the challenges are, also where the opportunities are, and then we add value where we can in terms of can we open a door for you in terms of stimulating sales? Do you need a specialist chairman in order to control and mentor certain processes? Or do we need to restructure the balance sheet in order for the company to survive? It's ad hoc how we do it because we don't have a particular team like Andreessen Horowitz or Atomico has. So we need to make sure that we use our time efficiently. In many cases, because we sit with the finger on the pulse, we don't hand it over to a operations value add team. We can do it faster and we can do it with a better understanding and a more diligently than if we were to sort of pass it on to another team. We're always trying to automate and find ways for entrepreneurs to benefit even further. So now we are trying to figure out is there a way for the entrepreneur to basically use our CRM database in order for them to basically, maybe that will help them in terms of sales, in terms of international expansion, in terms of recruitment, etc. So those are tech tools that we need to work through in order for us to figure out how to help our entrepreneurs even further going forward. You mentioned something there that maybe went past most because what you actually do and have as part of your strategy is that you help with turnaround. So when things <laughs> are going bad in a company, you run to it and really try and get it turned around and, and you spend quite some time doing that. And that, of course, ties very much to the belief that you have in investing in companies that are profitable or close to becoming profitable, which is something that's, <laughs> that most VCs don't necessarily have as a strong criteria in their selection process. I'm curious to hear your thinking around that, both how you help turnaround processes and maybe even take us through a case of that and then tie it to the profitability perspective in your investment thesis. Yeah, let me take a, a case, um, a French case. And the company operating the, in this sort of e-commerce facilitation space, the company had reference customers, integrations, technology that was almost best in class, not growing, even burning cash in an overall market that was growing 25% year on year. This meant that we needed to 
go into the company in cooperation. We don't come in, uh, as soldiers there and break in and try to, to so, uh, but we had to go in and, and, and in, in all these circumstances, there are always some decisions made that are not super popular. So we brought in a chairman, a chairman who very experienced, ex-CEO, used to work in multiple markets, one foot in the US, one foot in Europe. And he stabilized this company yeah, through working with us and he managed to sort of put a stable condition into this company that the company ended up growing. And we also put some money in and the structure we put the money in is quite advantageous to us in terms of securing that we actually made a return on the business. But the fact that we took the measure, we cut costs, we brought in a chairman and we put in some money that allowed them to to further prosper and then eventually exit. I'm curious, Kjartan, because it's part of the VC game that when you see that situation, you need to make the calculation and say, are we doubling down and helping or are we stepping away? If you can talk us through your framework for that, because you know I've seen one, for example, where you have nine grids, then you put the portfolio companies in there and there's just a rule that if you are in the ones on the left-hand bottom corner, then you are en route to be uh, sold off whatever the price. And that's just how it is. I'm curious to how your process is inside. When we are reviewing the portfolio, it's more a matter of, do we believe that we can get something out of this company and we can exit this company with some sort of a multiple? If we don't think that is the case, we don't even spend the time on the, on the company. Then we are sort of passively supportive, but we wouldn't go in and roll up our sleeves and dig into the company as we did in this circumstance. And you naturally have portfolios that they are being placed in buckets. We also have another facet that we are thinking about when we are working with entrepreneurs. We are in the process of building an, an institutional grade venture fund. Our reputation matters, our brand matters. We also want to be known as the guys that they at least try, <laughs> at least they are supportive. Because again, entrepreneurs, they talk, we are dependent on deal flow. We're dependent on being backed up by referrals and references. You can't just cut loose companies and say, mm. we're never in a million years that we're going to support you ever again. It's a fine balance in that respect. But, but I think automatically you see where the companies that is going to produce the bulk of the returns and you gravitate your resources towards that. And then the ones that you end up with more or less nothing that is a passive support, as I said. One of the people I have heard speak the most honest and openly about how the portfolio is managed from that perspective is Nico Goulet from Adara Ventures. And what he then said very clearly was that at the same time as I'm very clear about how we make decisions, I'm also equally clear to founders around expectation management that this is how it's going to be. And you'll know long time in advance that this is what's going to happen in six months because you are on this path. I'm curious, how do you manage the relation with a founder who's on the path to become a passive company in your portfolio? I have it today in my portfolio. This is a company that they have been hit by two avalanches. This is a company we're not the lead investor in. The lead investor has, has probably I wouldn't say they're a bad investor, but they're probably mismanaged the, the situation somewhat. But the entrepreneur is super talented, and I would gladly look at an, a new opportunity to back him 
that was the case because uh, I still rate him. He has learned a lot. He has been beaten up. He also He's a cockroach. <laughs> yeah, no, he is. He has also got a few other companies that he has, has started. So I wouldn't feel sorry for him. But he is, he's got grand ambitions still, and we have a great relationship. And that company, for example, I have a passive relationship. I recruited three other board members, including the chairman, to that. Common sense as well, it always prevails. Yeah. 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 Carden, we are butchering what was planned because we just spent <laughs> 40 minutes or so <laughs> chatting on about one of the four <laughs> topics we wanted to talk about. <laughs> but uh, let, let me take the second one because I do think it's something that we would really enjoy have your thoughts on. We had the opportunity to see a parts of your investment deck and that was really exciting. And I want to focus on something that you had there, which is an analysis of the European ecosystem. You described or identified that there was a lot of capital in the angel to seed stages. Then there was kind of a gap between C to series B. And then we had US and Asian funds coming in to close the funding gap after that. And this to people who are listening with an attentive mind explains why you position yourself where you do. Now that Concentric is moving into thinking of fund two, and this is also something that we want to talk about, how do you see the developments here? Do you see this remaining? What are the trends? And maybe the most interesting part about this conversation is how is this informing your investment thesis and its evolution or iteration? Many questions. <laughs> maybe I start with the Valley uh, inspiration. Yeah. So we went in and we started analyzing the European landscape. And this was also backed up by data from various sources, both academic yeah. and commercial sources. We have placed ourselves in, in that sort of funding sweet spot due to this sort of European funding mm -hmm. gap. We see that there is lack of funding in the sort of late seed, Series A, Series B. When you start coming beyond Series B, the companies are starting to become more mature, proven metrics, and companies that are, can attract US investors that can write huge checks, Asian investors, private equity houses that go down and they get a more sort of tech mindset. And there are even sort of global corporates that are starting to invest in investment. On the other side of the valley, you have the, the sort of early stage, the sort of pre-seed seed. There you have angel investors, every company executive. You have a bunch of seed funds. You also have a lot of grants, etc. So if you're raising sort of up to 500,750, there should be enough of funds in that bracket. So why is that? Part of the story is that venture capital was born in the U.S., we are still lagging the US, both in terms of experience, in terms of institutional backing, in terms of IPO markets. We don't have a benefit of Wall Street in Europe. It is improving, but we haven't had it. We don't have the track record as they have in the US. Venture in Europe has been what I would call venture 1.0. I'm not sure what I told you about this metaphor before, but I compare it with sort of the port versus the journey. Most European venture capitalists are very concerned about the harbor or the port. While it's not the port that is important, it's the journey. That is just where you make sure you take stock and then you are prepared for the next part of the journey. And I think the next generation of venture capitalists in Europe, they are more concerned about the journey, the time between the board meetings rather than the board meetings <laughs> themselves. The other thing in Europe is that 60% of the venture money is from state-backed institutions, whether that is Central Europeans or they are national 
a state-backed institution. You have to keep in mind is that our main priority is not returns. It is important, but that's not our main priority. Our main priority is innovation, employment, and R&D. And the intersection between universities and innovative companies. And that is not the case in the US, and that changes the dynamics somewhat. Deal flow in Europe is constantly evolving, but larger and larger tickets are going into B+, the C onwards, because they have better metrics, they are de-risk, and there's an ability to deploy more capital. If you bring that across to concentric and the way we have managed to work through that uh, funding gap. So fund one was too small to be a meaningful contributor in, in series B. So we stayed sort of late seed and series A. A fund two would be a larger and will have the ability to take larger initial stakes and also meaningfully follow through substantially in series B. And then venture in Europe is still as a nascent stage. We need to get endowments, pension funds, insurance companies involved because that's where the long-term patient money and the deep pockets should be coming in and should be replacing some of the state money coming in. That's where we are basically obviously differs towards the US market. But things are changing and I'm not painting a picture black here because we are on the right track. So in terms of fund two, we have gone through and quite sort of in an elaborate way analyzed, did it work what we did in fund one? Did the thesis work? Did the style work? Did the stage work? And we have to say, yes, we are going to follow the same thesis in fund two. There will be changes in terms of there are different types of software that has been introduced. There are changes in areas where technology is deployed. There are areas or industries that have been laggards that have suddenly started the digital transformation. But as a whole, we will do 20 companies. We will go larger initial stakes. We will continue to be activist investors and we will be able to follow on hard in 10 of those probably in Series B. That is our thinking. I even remember, Curtin, that you said the last time we spoke that in Fund 2, you'll actually be leading more rounds because you have seen through Fund 1 that in too many cases, you've had leads that didn't follow the activist approach to the level or degree that you see is the right perspective. And I think that it's a cool expression of what all the stuff we've been talking about earlier, whether you're an activist investor or, or one of those just saying it. And I think that's applaudable. Because of the size of the fund, we've had to syndicate earlier stage rounds and we brought on board investors who, in some cases, haven't pulled their weight. There's no point bringing on board investors into companies that really need help if they're not pulling their way. So we will just take those allocations ourselves. Kurt, and I have here a scripted question that is probably one of the funniest I'll ever ask in this podcast. <laughs> but before I go there, I have to ask something and feel free to ignore the question. <laughs> you say that we looked at what happened with Fund One, and we have to conclude that it worked. And I guess that the few LP listeners that we have have their ears ringing. And they're kind of thinking, hmm, uh, why? <laughs> why are you saying that it worked? Can you share anything with us for us to understand the success of Fund One? We uh, 22 investments. We have exited four. 18 companies left in the portfolio. So far, we haven't written off anything. Out of the 18, there are probably 10 of those that are breakout companies that are each and every one of them can be a very successful financial outcome for the fund. Eight of those are what I will call moving sideways type companies. And we need a catalyst there in order to make them into venture companies. Again. Yeah. Now we are two times multiple of the fund. 
as I said, we still have 10 companies that are uh, experiencing fast growth. Yeah, still um, early days. Yeah. So, so I, in, in 2023, I'll be able to tell you more or less final result will be or with a better prediction at least uh, we've got a date there curtain <laughs> <laughs> no pressure <laughs> yeah, i think um on a serious note to the lps listening and also to anyone else the best way to show that you believe in in what you're doing is of course to have a significant gp commit and i have to say i've never seen uh, GP commit in the uh, percentages that you have so at least you guys are doubling down on it <laughs> I mean, there's a phrase in your home country, we have a hand on the cooker. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, that is for sure. Yeah. Skin in the game, I keep saying the same thing. Uh, I keep saying, I have a hand on the cooker to people, and they're like, what are you talking about, Idris? Back to the, the, the funniest question I think I'll ever ask. And this actually, I cannot take credit for it, but I don't want to credit the author either. <laughs> but it's from your network, Yarton, so <laughs> just so you know. And, and to quote, uh, it goes like, Europe from an outsider's view tends to have the connotation with lazy, has been cafe lifestyle, where the Spanish are constantly having a siesta and the French are on strike. So concentric and you have a different view, I'm sure. <laughs> so could you expand on your view on Europe, but maybe on a more serious note, outsiders of Europe. So it might be uh, US investors, it might be Asian investors, it might be, you know, anywhere around the world. How would you present Europe as an investment opportunity to them, and what are your views there? Yeah, um, I can only guess who that is. Uh, <laughs> I have my suspicions who that can be. <laughs> so, to comment on that sort of statements first is like parts of Europe is less entrepreneurial, or there is a lack of entrepreneurial culture because that is probably typified through. A lot of red tape is very slow at setting up companies. When you're selling shares, they need to be notarized and go into that sort of procedure. The labor market is not very mobile. And those are all things that are hindering innovation and entrepreneurship. I think as a whole, Europe is moving in the right direction. And what we do have is great institutions in terms of education. We have an abundance of STEM graduates and computer scientists in particular. Europe as a whole, it has never been a more exciting time to be here. <laughs> Maybe 15 years ago, it was Berlin, Stockholm, London, Paris. Those were the hubs when you were thinking about investments in Europe. Now we can throw in exotic places like Bucharest, Tallinn, Warsaw, Rotterdam, etc. There is so many places around Europe now. I think it counted a unicorn had been created in 16 different cities across Europe. And that can only be a testament to the people, but also the times we live in, and the before mentioned access to cloud computing, open source software, the development platform. You don't have to develop everything from the ground up. You can just, everything is partly developed and you further the evolution on top of that platform. In terms of valuations, this is a, a number that is from one of the research agencies, but we are 70, 80% cheaper than the US. Sorry, it's from Atomico's uh, annual report. 70, 80% cheaper than the US in terms of our valuations. We're also starting to see this flywheel effect. In the US, they talk about the PayPal mafia. Now you have the Spotify mafia and the Skype mafia and the Zalando mafia in Europe. But that is just a word for the fact that people are starting to become repeat entrepreneurs. They are recycling money, but more importantly, knowledge. And that is coming the next generation 
to benefiting the next generation. And that is, that is something that, that is only time that can create that. And then you can't shortcut that. I mentioned it earlier, one thing they have in the US that we haven't had in Europe, but it's starting to develop, are the IPO markets. Tech IPOs were almost non-existing in Europe, but now we have the markets in Amsterdam, Adyen is a great example there. We have the Frankfurt market with TeamViewer. We had Oslo with Kahoot. We have Warsaw market with Allegro. We had London with Trustpilot, etc. These are all markets, and there are probably four or five other markets. So there is local liquidity for companies. The fact that European companies are being listed and European companies are being funded that means they become buyers of the next generation of companies. So you start having the biggest guys getting fatter and fatter, and then you have these sort of Russian dolls that become smaller and smaller, but there's a system to it. We also discussed it earlier, the best brains in Europe now wants to get into startups, which is great for venture capital. Yeah. And we're not no longer losing all the best entrepreneurs to the US. In the 80s and 90s, all the best brains in Europe, they went to Silicon Valley and built the companies there and most of them just stay there and the other thing is that we got to have ice in our stomach as well not sell out straight away when someone is putting a two-figure sum on the table <laughs> we got to have the ambition to build the googles the amazons we have the brains we're starting to have the capital we're starting to have the ecosystem and we're having people like myself and yourself who are contributing towards it it all helps and we will get there but we've just got to be patient and we've got to be brave as well i guess and the, yeah, the foundation is getting much, much stronger. I think this is the perfect <laughs> final word, Kjartan, before the quick fire round. That, of course, means we can answer questions 30 seconds each. Are you ready, Kjartan? Yes. <laughs> That's good. No hesitation at all. I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> Within the space of non-trivial problems in the traditional sectors, what areas excite you the most that most people don't really feel that excited about? Yeah, I mean, huge sectors, ongoing digital transformation, some sectors where there have been laggards and they are usually fragmented. This could be insurance, logistics, for example. These are hugely profitable sectors and there has been little or no need to innovate, but it's coming now. Margins are being squeezed and there are huge opportunities. And then what are the three most important things to get right? when investing in software companies that solve these non-trivial problems in the traditional sectors? People, product, market opportunity, and market maturity. We don't have any time, so we can't deep dive on that one, so we'll <laughs> run to the next one and say, aside from fund two, what can we expect in the future from Kyrton and Concentric? We will continue to build our activist investor mindset. We will partner with world-class entrepreneurs. We will continue our thought leadership and our thinking and contribution. We will contribute towards even further knowledge of the VC industry in Europe because we think that will help us as a firm and the, the industry as a whole. We are exploring new but related areas of investment areas or and products. And venture capital is, is in its infancy when it comes to the product life cycle. And I think we will see massive improvements and ways of investing into and developing world-class companies, and we will take an active part in that. That's very exciting, Kjartan. You can count on us to 
replicate and amplify that message whenever you want. We're happy to help whenever we can. And thank you so much for joining us. It was really nice having you on UVC today. I appreciate the invite. And as we have gone through on this podcast, a, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. So uh, <laughs> we will all have time to contribute, but also we need to contribute in a smart way. When people like you, you dedicate time to further that knowledge is great for the ecosystem. So thank you very much for both Andreas and David for keeping the good work. We're very thankful for you saying that, Jordan. means a lot. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.